Open in your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. So we are beginning our Advent series, our Advent season here at Normandale. And this first one is all about hope. As I began looking at the text, like looking at the Bible, like where, where do I want to go with this? Where do we want to talk about hope? And I came across this text in Hebrews. And uh, man, it was, as I read it, the more I thought about it, the, the more, like I came to it, I was like, man, this is like, has become the most life-giving text, at least for me personally, uh, over the past week or so. Uh, and in it, it's got this, this beautiful line here in verse 19, where it says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And like, you can't write a better sermony line than that, man. And so that's where we're at this morning. And so as you're turning there, here's the question for you, is what is the nature of faith itself, right? Like, if you think about the Christian faith, what does it mean to actually have faith? What is faith? Faith is the anticipation of some promise or something to, like, to be fulfilled, some truth to be delivered or upheld one day in the future. That's what your faith is. You believe that there exists some reality that is going to be true. One day is going to be sight. You will experience it in its fullness one day. That's what you're anticipating. That's what faith is. Or in other words, hope, right? Hope. You are looking forward to a time in which these truths that Scripture tells us are revealed in fullness. That is the nature of our faith. That's what hope is, right? And so let's look at the text here together. We read it at the beginning, but let's read it again. And we're going to pray, and then we'll dig into it together. So starting in verse 11. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for, for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that the, through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And we give this time to you. And so we open your word. And we ask for you to speak to us. Help us to be receptive. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So leading up to this point at, in chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews, the author is concerned with you and me not falling away from our faith. And he's got a big section about that. He says, listen, you need to stay committed. You don't need to have faith or think you have faith and then float away from the faith because at that point you're in danger, okay? You're in danger of not having ever had faith to begin with. So you need to be careful about not falling away. So the call from verse 10, heading into verse 11 then, is to continue to live and serve and love in Christ in the same manner that you have been. And then in verse 11 here, he presses further then to say, hold or demonstrate the same diligence until the end. He says, demonstrate the same diligence you once had until the very end of your life so that you may be feel or be certain of or to fully attain the full assurance of your hope in Christ. He's saying, press on till the end so you can be confident of your hope in Christ. What he means by that is this. If you are committed to Christ to the end, if you remain steadfast and like, I'm going to follow him to the end of my life, then you can experience certainty of your future with Christ. That's what he said. Is that if you remain committed to Christ all the way to the end of your life, then you can experience certainty of your future with Christ as opposed to falling away from your faith and then hoping at the end when you die, you at one point did have real faith. He's saying so you can be sure of your future with Christ if you remain committed to him until the end of your life. That's what he's getting at here. So demonstrate diligence so that you don't become lazy. Who says, verse, verse 11 and 12, he says this. Do this, verse 12, so you don't become lazy, but instead be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith. Be imitators of those who have inherited the promises. Like, there's a thing. If you want to learn a skill, if you want to become good at something, whether it's like a skill or if it's public speaking or if you're like, I want to become good at woodworking or I want to become good at being a good accountant or I want to go, like, what do you do at that point? Like, if you're like, man, I want to be this. I know that I'm not that now. How do you get there? You go find someone who's good at that thing and you say, I want to learn from you how to do that thing, right? You become an imitator of this other person. I had a a uh, uh, writing class when I was in college. And I remember this press professor, and it was the most kind of mind-altering thing for me. He's like, you know, there are some forms of plagiarism that's actually really good. He said, you don't want to steal people's work and claim that as your own. But if you see some people who are good writers then you take their writing, their method of writing, their skill in writing, their, how they turn a phrase, and you take that and you imitate it. He's like, be good plagiarizers. You take people who are skilled at things and you mimic that until you become skilled at it yourself. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is he's saying, if you 
want to attain full assurance, if you want to be confident of your future with Christ, if you want to press on, then be imitators of the ones that you know for certain have inherited or will inherit the promises of God. If you want to be godly, then find the godly person and imitate them. Now, for, for these guys, he's probably not thinking, okay, well, just think of someone in your church who's probably really godly and be like him. No, no. He's thinking of the heroes of the faith. That's what he's thinking about. And he gives us a list of them in actually chapter 11. He gives us a list of the heroes of the faith, and it's, who's in, who's in that? It's, it's uh, Abel, and it's Noah, and it's Moses, and it's Abraham, and Sarah, and Rahab, and David. It's got all these heroes of the faith, and, and what he's saying is, if you want to be confident, then imitate the people that you know have attained the promises of God. And so that's what he's saying. He gives us this list. He says, go and be imitators of them. But there's two questions that come up. At, at this point in the text, where he says, imitate those people. One of them is, does it sound like he's saying, do good enough so you can attain good from God? And we're going to answer that question when we answer this next one, because the second question is this. How can I be certain? How can I be certain that the promise is kept to those giants of the faith, Abel and David and Moses and Abraham and Sarah, how can I be confident that the promise is kept to those people who seem to be wholly other than me? How can I be confident that those promises will be kept to me as well? And so th- this is kind of an interesting thing. So it's like the, the author of Hebrews says this, well, Let's pick one of those guys, and we'll look at their story, and we'll see what really happened in it. How are the promises kept to that guy? So he says, let's look at the list. Who's probably the premier guy on the list to demonstrate the most faith? Abraham. Let's go with him. So look what the text says. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. And what did he say? I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Now, that promise came after one of the most eventful moments in the Old Testament. It's from Genesis chapter 22. So, if you have your your Bible, turn over there to uh, Genesis chapter 22 with me. This is from a moment called the sacrifice of Isaac. So, Abraham was a dude that God called to follow him. He said, I'm going to take you away from your land. I'm going to take you away from your family, and I want you to trust me and follow me. And if you do that, I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you people, a big inheritance. And so Abraham did that, and he followed him. And for the longest time in his life, he had to believe that God was going to fulfill this promise. But up until this point, which is 60 years later, something like that, 60, 70 years later, he still did not have land given to him, and he still did not have a son given to him. But when he was an old man, God opened up the womb of his wife, Sarah, and gave him a son named Isaac. And then God came to him one day, and he says, 
I want you to go sacrifice that son to me. I want to see where your heart really is. You remember, Abraham has waited his entire life for this moment. But after these things, verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 1, God tested Abraham, and he said, Abraham, and he said, here I am, verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I tell you about. And so what they do is he takes his son, who's probably a teenager at the time, and he loads him up and with the donkeys, and he says, we're going to go out, and we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. And the whole time there, Isaac's like, well, what are we going to do? Where are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham would say, the Lord's going to provide the sacrifice. And so they get up on the mountain, and once they're up there, they put the wood down to be an altar, and then he grabs his son and ties him to the altar takes a knife and is about to kill his son as an offering to God. And at the last moment, God stops him and he says, Abraham, stop. For now I know you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and he looked over and he saw a ram caught in some thorns. And that was the sacrifice that God had provided for him. And the whole point of this picture was for God to see where is your faith? Where does your faith truly lie? What is the most important thing to you? Is it this son you've waited for, or is it me? And for you and me, we look at that, and we're like, okay, I guess that's kind of nice. Like, God's testing him, and God wants to, you know, see if he loves him. But on the other hand, we're looking at that, and we're like, is that kind of child abuse? You know, like, it's kind of like, I've thought about this for a long time. Like, what about that walk back home? Like, what does he say? Like, don't, don't tell your mom about this. You know, like, what do you, what do, you do at this point? <laughs> you know, and I'm sure, I don't know. I don't know if God was working in Isaac's heart and God, he was just trusting him too. Like, but here's the thing is in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. He says he was walking through with this, knowing that him sacrificing his son in and of itself was not a good thing. He was trying to honor God and do what God said, but what, what, uh, what he believed was that even if his son was killed that day, he, even though he had never seen it, Abraham believed that even God could raise someone from the dead. He believed that. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11. And so that was the experience. But after this experience, God comes to him and he says this, since you have not withheld your son from me, I I'm going to confirm my promise to you. That's what he says. He says, I am going to give you. I am, because you've not, you've done this thing, you've, you've not withheld your only son. Verse 17, I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because you have obeyed my command. God honored this moment. Now, this is, I wanted to say, this is descriptive, not prescriptive for us. But God called him in this moment to offer this sacrifice, and God honored him by following in, in obedience. And he said, I'm going to confirm my promise to you. And so that is what the author of Hebrews is pointing back to. He says this, this moment... When Abraham had this great 
victory of faith in which I'm going to love God with everything in me and I'm going to do exactly what he tells me to do. God confirms a promise to him in light of that. It says, because you did this, I'm going to confirm my promise to you. I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you people. And so for you and me, we can look at this. We're like, yeah, major faith. Good job, Abraham. Like he follows through and obeys God and God confirms his promise. But then for you and me, we look at this text and we're like, okay, I'm supposed to imitate that guy. I can't live up to that. Like, I've got, I've got several sons, and each one of them, I look at them at night, and I'm like, man, I just hope nothing happens to you. I love you guys. You know, every night I put them to bed, and I kind of worry, you know? I've told you guys about that. And like, the idea of sacrificing one of them to please God is unthinkable. And I, I do want to say this as a side note. There's no instance in which God recommends that in, in the Bible, aside from this one instance in which it was a test, it wasn't the real thing. It's always abhorrent to God. Anyways, but the idea of being called to do something like that, to demonstrate that kind of faith, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm out on that. I could never uh, attain the level of faith that Abraham has. And so if he's the example, if he's the one I'm supposed to imitate, I'm not there. I had lunch with a guy this week. Uh, in which we were talking about this Abraham story. And what he told me, he's like, man, I'd love to be like Abraham. I'd love to be there. I'm just not. Like, I'm not that. And he's so true. And so for you and me, when we read these texts, we're like, I'm supposed to imitate this guy. And, and we see, like, their faith, and you're like, if anyone can save themselves, if anyone can bring about a promise themselves, it's this guy, Right? It's that guy. And I think the author of Hebrews chooses this story for this reason. Because it's like, man, that's a triumph of faith. Of course he, he would get the promises confirmed to him because he was so great. But after this, God confirms this, this promise, but he does it in a really interesting way. Go back to Hebrews. Look at verse 13 with me. For when God made that promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Now, do you know what that means? It doesn't mean like he swore alone and he didn't have a partner in it. Like, no, it means he said, I am going to be the one to bring this about. He said, there's nothing greater by which I can swear. Like if we, if, you know, sometimes if you go and you're going to put testimony in a, in a court case, sometimes you'll hold a Bible and you put your hand on the Bible, like I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, you know, have your hand on the Bible. You're swearing on the Bible saying this is greater than me, and I swear by on, on behalf of this thing or by this thing saying I'm going to tell the truth. Well, God's like, there is no Bible. There's nothing that's greater than me, so I'm going to put my hand on myself, and I'm going to swear by me that I'm going to bring this about. That's what he's saying here. God wants to to clarify, and the author of Hebrews wants to clarify for you and me that who was, or who was behind these promises being fulfilled. Like, God does not want you to take away from that Abraham story or from this in Hebrews that these past situations, these past super people were superheroes of the faith that were just had this monster faith in God that you could never attain. And for you to look at them and think, there's this vast ocean of perfection that I'll never measure up to. And since that's the case, since there is this gulf between me and Abraham or me and Sarah or me and Rahab or whoever else, 
that we would look at that and think, God could never love me like them. God could never confirm a promise to me like them because I just don't live like them because I'm not them. I can't have faith like that. That is the opposite point of what the text is trying to tell us. It's the opposite point. Look at verse 17 with me. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. You see, God wanted you to be able to hear this, the confirming promise to Abraham, and feel deeply encouraged and hopeful for your own life. He wanted that. See, God confirmed it with an oath so that way you, as an heir of the promise who believes in Christ, you become an heir of God, and so you can hear these promises of God and think, these are for me, and these are for my family. When we believe this is for my church, we are going to pursue him to the end because he has confirmed these things to us. He wants you to see this and be deeply encouraged. How? He guaranteed his promises by putting something down as collateral. What he put down as collateral? Himself. Himself. He said, there is nothing greater by which I can swear by. I am guaranteeing these promises. And it's interesting. God, is opposite of a lot of financial, Christian financial, God presents his promises in terms of debt. In terms of debt. God took out a loan, and he said, I'm the collateral on it that I'll pay it back. Isn't that interesting? He said, there is a loan I'm taking out. I'm giving you a promise, and one day I'm going to pay this thing back, and I am the guarantee of it. I'm putting my own character, my own body on the line to pay this thing back. It was meant as a promise for you and me to be encouraged so you could feel encouraged and not despair. You could feel love for him and not fear. See, look at verse 18 with me. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. This is meant as encouragement for us. You see, the promise to Abraham was not backed by anything Abraham did. It was by the God behind it. The God behind it. He was the one who backed this promise and says, I'm going to be the one to bring this about. It's not anything you can do on your own to bring this thing about. And so check this out. You and I, have, especially recently, have learned a lot about uh, investments that can lose value, right? Anyone with a retirement account. Uh, you've known over the past year or so uh, what can happen when the uh, stock market goes down. Now, there are a lot of investments we can make. You can invest in Apple. You can invest in Bitcoin and lose your shirt. You can do a lot of things. But you know the safest investment, generally the safest investment, is a U.S. Treasury bond, the 10-year T-note. Now, how this works is basically the government puts out a, a, a bond. They say, we want to borrow money. And if you lend us your money... We're going to pay you back a percentage of that in 10 years. And so right now, I've looked at it this morning. It's 3.5%, which is actually really high for the T-note. 
So you can, if you lend the government money, they will pay you back 3.5% interest on the money you gave them in 10 years. Okay. Now, why is that generally considered the safest investment you can make? Because who is backing it? Who's behind it? You see, the thing, the, the thing that's endorsing or backing this investment is the scope and the prestige of the United States government, who's never defaulted on a loan. And so if you give your money to the government, you are pretty much guaranteed to get your money back. You're not going to lose it because the government's probably not going to default on the loan. Why? Well, because the Congress will always come at the last second and raise the debt ceiling. That's how they always do it, right? They're not going to default on the loan. That would be disastrous for everyone. And so the 10-year T-note is incredibly safe. Now, why do I tell you that? Because here in Hebrews, the author is telling us there's an even safer investment than the 10-year T-note. That's what he's getting at. Because it's not backed by the U.S. government, which could and one day will no longer exist, frankly. In the scheme of history, every country eventually will fall away. But there's something that will never fall away. God himself. He says, I am making out, I'm making a loan. I'm making a promise to you, and I am the one backing it. It's not you. It's not your performance. Not Abraham's performance. It's me. I am going to bring this to fruition. And if you buy in with me, you are guaranteed to be a recipient in the future. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in here. And then Hebrews offers us this wonderful image of how this truth actually affects your normal life, right? Because sometimes you come and you're like, ah, this truth, cool. Now I'm going to go about my life. No, Hebrews gives us an an example of how this truth affects your real life. Look at verse 19. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. An anchor. So when I was a kid, my dad uh, bought this 1970s deck boat. It was, uh, someone put it by the side of the road. He bought it, and it was in pieces. Uh, but he, my dad's real crafty, and he put this thing back together and painted it, and it was awesome. And we had this deck boat, and we loved this thing. We would go out, and we had this, like, thing, this big, uh, you know, like everyone does with a boat. You have the tube you follow and all that. That's not that significant. But we had this thing, and we loved it, okay? But one of the things we did with this boat pretty commonly is we lived in Waco at the time, and we went to this pizza place in Robinson, on the way out to Lake Waco. And so we'd go and get a pizza at the, at the pizza place, and we'd take it with us out to the lake. And we'd keep it, and we'd, we would wait until we got into the middle of the lake. We got into the middle of the lake. Dad would drop the anchor down, and then we'd all eat pizza together and hang out, put on life jackets, jump off the boat, go swim around. It was a great time. Now, for my parents, they had three elementary kids all swimming around in Lake Waco. We'd eat pizza. We'd jump in. We wouldn't wait 30 minutes. We'd jump in. Now, for my parent, for me, I didn't really care about it. It wasn't that important to me. I didn't like. I just, you know, I'm just having a good time, hanging out. For my parents, that anchor on the boat was really important. Why? It kept the boat by our family, with three little elementary kids swimming in the middle of the lake. So it does two things. One, it keeps the boat by us, so that way other boats will see, hey, there's something happening right here, and so like they're not just you know blaring through us and not seeing a little elementary kid. In the boat. Like, no, there's a boat there. You got to avoid that. The second thing it does is it keeps the boat by us so it doesn't drift away and we don't have to go chase it down, right? Because what happens if there's no anchor? Eventually the waves push the boat. And if you don't have an anchor, where will your boat eventually be? 
and somewhere you don't intend it to be, right? It's either going to be off in some reeds somewhere, and you've got to go dig it out of there, or it's going to be in the middle of the lake, and you've got to go swim to get it. Hopefully you're a good swimmer. That's what an anchor does, is it keeps the boat exactly where you intend it to be. And so for the author of Hebrews, what he's saying here is that the hope from God is an anchor for your soul that keeps you where you want to be. It keeps you, when, when you have the waves battering against you in your normal, eventful life, coming against you, pushing you away, you have an anchor for your soul holding you where you want to be, which is with your Father in heaven. That is what your hope in Christ does for you. So now we don't have time to dig a, a lot into, into verse 20. But it does point us to the hope of Christmas. Because look what it says. Or go back to verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what this says, broad speaking, we could have a whole sermon on these two verses. But what it says for us is that we have this hope. And it says how this collateral was repaid. Jesus came on our behalf. You see, the child that was born roughly 6 B.C., we're roughly around that time, was God making good on his promise. He said, I've got this loan I've taken out, and now I'm paying it back, starting with the birth of my son. That's what he does. And so at Christmas, we see the hope fulfilled in Jesus and hope renewed or reborn for you and me, right? Because it's no longer based on what, like, man, one day God is going to do this. No, no, no. Now we get to look back and say, no, look what God did. God already confirmed his promise to us. Now my hope, my future is not resting in my performance, but in the one who came 2,000 years ago. That is where my hope is resting now. His work has already completed all that's necessary for me and in my future. So now I'm going to hold fast to him. I'm going to anchor myself to the hope that he provided on the cross when he died. That's what I'm in. That's where my hope is. And so God's love for you and God's future for you is not based on your performance, just like it was never based on Abraham's. But it's based on God's character and on the work of his son who came for us 2,000 years ago. And so you have hope. There is a hope that serves as an anchor for your soul if you claim it. And it is firm and secure.